I hope it is. Yeah, it's on. All right, First Peter chapter 3, as we're getting ready for this baptism that's coming up, I just wanted to preach a message. I always like to, um, when, I, when I start out, I just want to lay a foundation like I did with, a, with the Lord's Supper this past week, uh, laying a foundation of what the, you know, of course, I think I preached that Sunday night, what the Lord's Supper was, what it meant, the intent and everything in behind it. The Lord gave two ordinances to the church and one of them was the Lord's Supper. That's something that you do over and over and over again uh, because it has to do with our communion with the Savior. Baptism's different. You only do that once. It pictures our union with Christ. And the moment you get saved, you're united with Him. But I always like to lay a baseline. What is baptism? What does it mean? And uh, why, why do we do it? And of course, uh, the simple answer would be obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you You'll get to see another side of that here in 1 Peter chapter 3 where it deals with having a good conscience. It's an answer to a good conscience. And that's the title of the message for this morning, an answer to a good conscience in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you? Wait a minute. Let me jump down to verse 6, 15. Just jump down to verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, that they may be ashamed to falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it's better if the will of God be so that... you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. There's a semicolon that ends there at the end of the Spirit, and it tells you that really this verse, verse 18, is going to be expounded upon in the next few verses. And so everything in verses 19 through 22, it just has to do with relating back to verse 18. But notice verse 19. But which also, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers made subject unto him, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. For as much sin as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but, here it is, to the will of of God, Let us pray as we get into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for what you've done for us. Lord, your death, burial, and resurrection at the cross of Calvary. And I pray you help this preacher to communicate in a very simple way what baptism means. Lord, it's significant. You've commanded us to do it. Lord, you've baptized some of the disciples and Lord, you've commanded us as disciples to go out and make other disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so I prayed it in a very simple way that I can communicate this message in a way that makes sense. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now through the late, I believe it's the late um, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, whatever you want to call it, uh, there, there were great missionaries that were sent out. I think of John Huss and the Moravians that came out of that, Savonarella, I know I butchered the name, but he was a great fiery preacher, though he came out of the Catholic Church, but uh, they didn't know what to do with him. But uh, he went out and preached great messages. People were getting saved by the droves because they're hearing the gospel of salvation for the very first time in a new way that they weren't getting in the church of Rome. And so they were going out, they were sending out these missionaries, people were getting saved. And when it came to doing the baptism, they understood that that was something that they ought to do. It wasn't getting sprinkled as a baby at eight, eight days old and things of that age, dedicating their babies. They, they realized that as believers, 
there's such a thing called believer's baptism. They ought to be baptized, and they would just gather around these large pools and be baptized left and right as they would go and preach to these barbarian and heathen groups and such as that. And one thing that was just uncanny during this period of time is that missionaries found that when they baptized them, these, these barbarian heathen groups especially wanted to be baptized with their right hand out of the water. They said, you can baptize me, but let me have my right hand out of the water. And they came to the conclusion, they asked them, why would you do that? And they said, well, because we want to use this hand to still kill and do battle and things like that. We understand that the rest of us is buried in baptism and death, but this hand, I need it for battle. And uh, they misunderstood the whole point completely. And I believe sometimes we can miss the point that uh, Christ wants all of us, not just part of it, all of us. This morning, I want you to understand that true baptism has nothing to be, do with being baptized into a religion. I believe that there are probably some people that would have you to believe that. We want to baptize you into the, the, the denomination of uh, the Pentecostals, the denomination of Lutheran, the denomination of the Wesleyan, the denomination of this. You don't get baptized into a denomination. He tells us over in Matthew chapter 28, he says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's not being baptized into the Baptist religion or anything like that. You are being baptized into Christ by immersion as an example that our Lord gave us. When our Lord went down to be baptized in the Jordan River, and of course he appeared before John, John, as he gets the news that the Lord wants to be baptized in him, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to be baptized of you. Not even worthy to unloose the shoe latch on your feet, but yet he appears before John and he says, suffice it to be so now for righteousness sake. And he goes down and he is baptized by John, fully submersed down into the water. Of course, uh, he is lifted back up out and the, John sees this, this image of a dove. The dove comes down and descends upon him. He hears a voice out of the heaven. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we have that image. And, and even afterwards, when we look at the baptisms that take place afterwards, Acts chapter 8 and, and onwards, it's always by immersion, completely down into the water and back up out. So first is the New Testament principle. Second, the form of baptism by immersion is tied to the meaning that just as Christ died for our sins on that cross, we are buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. It's tied to the meaning there. And it signifies that death has taken place and a new life results because of our union with Christ, because of salvation. And again, the baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't give you any merits of grace or anything like that. It's just being obedient, trying to be submissive to our Lord, saying that this is what Christ wants me to do. This is what I'm going to do because it's an obedience to my Lord. And then the third answer is an answer to a good conscience. An answer to a good conscience. I know that many of you understand this morning that if you're a Catholic or if you're a Methodist or if you're maybe Amish, these guys, they, they struggle with the fact if somebody goes and they make a profession of faith, and they, they don't really like that a whole lot. If you make a profession and say, you know, I've received Christ as my personal Savior, and I want to live for Him, and I want to walk with Him, and I'm giving my life because Christ died for me, and I received Him as my personal Savior. They, they really struggle with that. But the next step of that is baptism. And when you're baptized in, in one of these religions, out, out you know, into, into the faith, and you've just undermined everything that they've taught you about what the Amish believe or what the Catholic believes or whatever. And, and you're having them appear before to see you being baptized. That's like anathema to them. That's the worst thing that you can do. You're saying that their faith is no good. You're saying their baptism is no good. Everything that they taught you wasn't right. But you're trying to reassure them, I'm doing this in obedience to the command of Christ. I'm not doing this for some sort of religion. I'm doing this because of Christ, and I hope that I can bring that in. But yet, you come to some of these places, they won't have anything to do with you. If you're a Catholic, it's like you're dead to them. Or you're Amish, you're dead to them. And some of us, we can't fathom that, but it's, it's true in other parts of the area of the country as well. They can't fathom you leaving their faith and their baptism because they recognize the significance. It signifies that they believe what, what they believe in their baptism is not scriptural nor sufficient. History bears out that there was a people called Baptists. It wasn't a name that they chose for themselves. It was a name that other people gave to them 
because they would go in, and in fact, they were called Anabaptists originally. Uh, my, my descendants, they were Anabaptists long years ago. Uh, they would baptize people again because, again, they, they grew up in a Catholic church. They received the sprinkling at how many ever days old, and, but they realized it wasn't sufficient, and, and they would be baptized, and they were giving this name as a derogatory name. In fact, many of the punishments they would suffer, if they would go and be baptized, they would, they would seek to drown them under the water in the rivers because of their decision to be baptized. That is what the Catholic Church and many others would do during that period of time. It's really unconscionable just because they wanted to be identified with Christ and it meant something to them. You're not baptized again into a religion, I'll hammer that home, or a denomination, though many churches would lead you to believe that, it pictures of marriage where you're dead to the old life. A life that you used to have that you no longer live. It's like the marriage principle in, what is it, Genesis chapter 2. You leave and you cleave. You've left that old life. You're dead, you're dead to that old life. You've given a new name. You've been given a, a new life. It pictures that new name that you carry, a new life that you live for Jesus Christ. You have a clear conscience because you've left that old life for good. You don't plan on going back. And you have cleaved unto Christ and he has become your life. Jesus is your life. There's only one way to achieve happiness on this terrestrial ball. That is to have either a clear conscience or none at all. That's a saying from Ogden Nash. I don't know who he is, but it was a good saying, all right? I'm going to be dealing with this controversial text in the Bible. As we come down through, and you'll see some of the reasons why in verses 19 in particular, 19 and 20, but uh, dealing with this controversial text and hopefully try to simplify it and make it easy for us to understand. Peter, two times in the Bible, in this one chapter alone, he uses the word conscience. He uses it in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, Having a good conscience, and whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed to falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So there's a connection between having a good con conscience and a good conversation or a life Live for Christ. So there's mentioned once in verse 16 and mentioned again in verse 21 where it says that baptism is the answer to a good conscience. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just an answer to a good conscience, but a good conscience, you notice the last part, toward God. So baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. There are some people that could come up to me today and they could tell me, Pastor, you know, I don't have a guilty conscience. I don't have any problem with what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I don't have any way, problem with the way I'm living. My parents don't have any way with the way I'm living. I think it's fine. And, you know, the world does have a problem with it. There's no laws against it. And so I think that it's okay. My, my conscience is not convicting me. It's maybe fine for you. But it's a good conscience toward God that you need. And that's what he is bringing out here. It's, it's not saying, because these people are out there accusing them. They're, they're thinking it's strange that they're not running with them. They're not giving the partying, drunk, drunkenness, or any of these other kind of things that the world is doing today. And they're out there just you know, making a mess out of their lives. They think it's strange that you're not running with them and hanging out with them and being a part of their kind of activities. And they think that it's strange and they could begin to mock and ridicule you. But you can say, well, I have a good conscience toward God. I don't need to please you. You're living for the world. I'm not trying to please the world. I'm trying to please the Lord. I'm living for Him. And so it's this kind of conscience that he begins to point out, this uh, baptism, this outward expression of an inward reality, how it's an answer, this good conscience. Verses 19 through 22 of our text, again, it expounds verse 18 directly. And then after that, we see verses 19 and verses 21 and 22, it shows us how we are saved in Christ. But um, do you have a good conscience toward God this morning? Not just a good conscience, but a good conscience toward God. Because that's what I want to communicate to you. Do you have a good conscience toward God? We look at the Bible, and the Bible begins to point out about Noah. Peter mentions it. He brings it out of an Old Testament text, and he says, you know, there were the days of Noah... <laughs> Days when things were not so good, things were not so hot upon the face of the earth. There was a bad time, and Noah, the preacher of righteousness, he preached for 120 years about God's righteousness and his coming judgment. They all mocked and scoffed, and they, they all made fun of Noah. He 
They begin to confront him about their sins. But can I tell you this? That he points out the fact that Noah could have a good conscience. Though when he, Noah was preaching, those who he was preaching to were not moved by the preaching at all. You could be here this morning and tell me again, I, I don't have a guilty conscience. I'm fine. But it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything at all. Back in the olden days, they used to have this thing called a sundial. I'm glad I don't have one of those anymore. I'd never be able to figure out how to use it with all the shadows and everything else. The way you use a sundial is you put it down and you draw a circle, you put a stick in, it, in there and uh, the sun beams down and it tells you what kind of time it is. It only works if the sun is shining down to tell you how it works. You can't take a flashlight and shine down a part and say, wow, look, it's three o'clock. I wish I could change the time. I tell Suzanne all the time, I said, what did you do to that clock? It's not working. I mean, this time is flying, but it's got to be measured by the sun. Present day religion, many have trusted in their own conscience. They've tried to let it be their own guide. They listen to Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide kind of thing. But the Bible tells us that we need a good conscience toward God. It tells us about Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord and his conscience was quickened. Very sensitive to what God was saying. And again, God appeared unto Noah the, thing, the time during that time. It was not an easy world to live in. It was a lot of wickedness. It was a lot of carrying on. They were marrying. They were eating. They were drinking. They were given in marriage. And Noah was preaching and preaching and preaching. Nobody was responding. It wasn't an easy time to live. But, but Noah, Noah heard the voice of God, and he was sensitive to the voice of God. The Bible tells us over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, But Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. He received the word and he says, God told him, he says, I want to judge this world with a flood. No, I want you to build an ark. And he immediately moved into action. He heard, he listened, he was moved by the word of God. He received it. Though all the world mocked him. They mocked God's judgment. They disregarded the man of God. They would hear none of his preaching. This morning, I'm not talking about a conscience of a nation or a conscience of an uh, but the conscience of an individual this morning. What I want to point out is there a difference between a guilty conscience and a good conscience toward God. A guilty conscience and a good conscience toward God. We need a conscience that's been regenerated, been renewed by the Holy Ghost. We need a conscience that's transformed by the mind of Christ. We need one that receives His Word. We need one that responds to His love and recognizes uh, what He is doing, His will, His way, and receives it, lives it out, walks it out, and reveres God's holiness because, because of who He is. The unsaved, they don't do that. They're not listening to God's Word. They're not trying to heed it, and they're not trying to listen to it. But they ought to. And so again, do you have a good conscience toward God? Your conscience is able to discern between right and wrong. Shows us that we're morally accountable to God to some degree or another. We're capable of making judgment calls about what we want to eat and where we want to go and uh, trying to go out and how we want to observe the day, whether it's to the Lord or not. And your conscience makes some of those determining decisions, the way that you live, the way that you behave, and that conscience begins to record this information. John Bunyan called it Mr. Recorder, you know. And, uh, you, you receive all this information, and, and it begins to talk about how your heart, sometimes your heart condemns you. There's been times where I think back to my past. There were things that just, you know, the devil wants to bring up over and over again, and it just bothers you. You're like, yeah, I've been guilty of that. I did that. You try to forget about it and doubt, you know, try to get rid of it out of your mind. And you got to deal with that guilty conscience. What do you want to do with it? Because I believe God settles the issue of the guilty conscience, and I'll point that out to you this morning. But this guilt, this conscience here, it's, it records this information. It tells us um, of everything that we, we've done. It's something that God put within every one of us. Maybe at some point in your life, you heard scriptures like Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, where it says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. And just like God spoke to Noah and he told him, he says, um, I want you to build an ark. I want to send judgment. What do you want to do with that information? Are you going to respond to God? Are you going to listen to his word? Are you going to 
hear what God has to say, the soul that sinneth this shall die, you recognize that everybody in this world has sinned. We've all done wrong. I've knocked on doors plenty of times, and you talk to them and say, yeah, I recognize I've done wrong. I recognize I've sinned in my life. I'm a sinner. You go down to Ten Commandments, and they'll confess that to you. Well, do you understand because of those sins, you're guilty of death? That's part of the way that the conscience works. Do you recognize like Revelation 21 verse 8 where it says, But the fearful, unbelieving, and the abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, all liars who have their part in the lake of fire, which burneth forever and ever, which is a second death. And you've got to do something with that information. You know, do you fit in that category of all those, the, the liars, the murderers, the whoremongers, all those that are pointed out there in Revelation 21? And if you do, you've got to realize, that, hey, there is a death. And you got to do something with that. And maybe God is convicting and convincing the conscience to say, yes, I am guilty. Yes, I've done wrong. And what shall I do like those who Peter preached to on the day of Pentecost? Men and brethren, what shall I do? Realizing they were guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, repent and re receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Use another passage of Scripture to show you just the, the, the impact of this this conscience and how it works. The Bible tells us in John 3, 18, he says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. And he's talking about the Son of God there. He that believeth on the Son of God is not condemned. And there's that belief that he emphasizes there. Talking about, you know, the Son of God, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, is what the Bible says. And you've got to recognize you're in one camp or the other. If you believe, you're in the camp that says, hey, I am not condemned. But if I don't believe, there's on the other side that says, hey, I am guilty. It doesn't matter whether you say, my conscience doesn't convict me of that. It doesn't change the truth or the reality. There's a lot of people in this world that say the earth is flat, even though we've had people up in space, and people do not deny that too. And uh, they look down to the earth, and they say it's round, and they have pictures of it, amazing pictures. And they deny it all day long. You could deny the facts, but it doesn't change it. I'm glad that I'm not condemned because I've received Jesus as my Savior. And I have a good conscience toward God. With every scripture, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, which show the work, talking about the conscience, which show the work of the law written on our hearts. Their conscience bearing witness with their thoughts to meanwhile accusing or excusing one another in the day which God should judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It says the number one witness that's going to stand up against you is going to be your conscience. Of those things you've done where you, you've lied, you've cheated, you've manipulated, you tried to get your own way, and your conscience condemned you, and one day all those thoughts... Those times your conscience has condemned you, convicted you, that'll be the number one witness, along with the gospel, the book that is opened. The problem for the natural man is that his conscience is defiled. Titus chapter 1, verse 15, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled, an unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. He says, but their conscience is defiled. It's not working properly. It's not oriented toward God. Again, like the sun and the sundial, it's not oriented toward God. But let me press down on that just a little bit once more here. The conscience that we find here in verse 21. In verse 16 of our text, the conscience, the word that Peter uses here, is a word that's used only these two times in Scripture. It's the word eparatema. Eparatema. And it means an inquiry. It has the idea of going through the facts like a, an investigator, and he's searching through all the facts, trying to determine what is true, and putting together all the pieces, trying to determine uh, you know, what is right and what is wrong, and trying to get something settled. Is what God says true or is it not? And they look into the word and they try to look at the facts. Where, where did we come from in this world? Again, a lot of people think about creation. How did we get here in this world? Conscience. What is this that my heart speaks to me? And they're trying to put together all the pieces to try to figure out is there a God or not? And the ultimate question there is, am I right with God? 
Am I right with God? Am I right with you, Lord? And that's the conscience that Peter alludes to here in the Scripture. It's a conscience that has to be reconciled to God. A conscience that is right toward God will spare you of a lot of problems. Man is a free moral agent in this world. His conscience must work out an acceptable faith that is found in the work of Christ, culminated in his resurrection. It shows us that man is not regenerated in order to believe, as Calvinism says. They say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit made you believe, and so you believe. No, you had to make a conscious decision evaluating the facts to believe or not to believe. Nobody forces you to do it. God's a gentleman. It's not going to force anything upon you. But man's free will is active to choose and to reason out these things, the decision that he's going to make at the end of the day. And that's why Peter says in verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You can't do that unless your conscience has been reconciled to God. So what is bat- why is baptism an answer to a good conscience? So I'll say, number one, because of the death of Christ. Because of the death of Christ, and that's the reason why that this is an answer to, of a good conscience. There, all, all, there is sin in the world, obviously. But what are we going to do with this sin? You know, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. We've got to do something with sin in, in, in our lives. We need a clean conscience toward God, and this is what I want to drive across. We need a happy conscience. We need a good conscience. We need a clean conscience. We need a pure conscience. We need a conscience that is directed toward God, and we need to deal with the fact that before we were saved, hey, we had a defiled conscience. We had a, a dirty conscience. We had a conscience that needed to be reconciled because of sin. We need to deal with sin, ultimately, is what I'm trying to say to you this morning. You can't have a clean conscience if you still are dealing with sin and that, that is held over you, that you're still accountable for, that you're trying to deal with in your own way that instead of letting Christ, who died for you, settle your sins. You've got to bring them to the cross. You've got to bring them to Calvary. Every conscience issue is always a sin issue. Sin defiles the conscience. Your conscience can't be clean until your sin is dealt with. Let me just go to the text here this morning. Verses 19 to 20 says, um, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. But sometimes we're disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by fire. It's interesting there when people look at that and they say, the Spirit's in prison. What does that mean? And some people will go and they say, well, maybe Jesus went and he preached to the angels. They say, hey, t- time out. God didn't die to redeem fallen angels. They made their choice or decision. I mean, they said God didn't die for them. He died for us. Why would he go when he preached to fallen angels? That can't be the answer. I said, well, maybe he went and he preached to those in Noah's day because, you know, they didn't hear the fact that Jesus went and he died on the cross for every one of their sins, and they didn't hear it. Maybe Jesus went back and he went to preach for them, and I said, wait, time out again. Luke chapter 16 tells me that um, when the rich man died and he lifted up his eyes in hell, when he denied God all of his lifelong days, he never was able to come back up out of hell and go into heaven. He didn't give it a second chance. After you breathe your last, I mean, that's the only opportunity that you have. That's why I devote my life to preaching the gospel, to see people saved. When I found out that my, my Aunt Brenda, she passed away, and my, my, my uncle, that, that he's on the deathbed now, I mean... When I, when I think about that, and I think about how short life is, I think they need the gospel. They're not going to get another chance. Do you know today that people in hell, every single one of them are believers today? Every single one of them. The rich man had lifted up his eyes in hell. He says, go and send, send somebody to preach to my brothers and tell them they don't want to come to this place. This place of torment, this place of fire, they don't want to come here. Send somebody. Send Lazarus. Raise him back from the dead. Send Lazarus. And tell them, don't come here. Every single one of them is a believer. Jesus didn't go to preach to some fallen spirits. He didn't go and preach to those who had already passed away. He's already preached. But I'm talking about the the spirits who were enchained. He's talking about people who are enchained by sin. Enslaved by it. They're captive by it. They're held by it. 
has taken over their lives. And anybody who's ever dealt with any sort of addiction in their life, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's pornography, whether it's anything, anybody that's ever dealt with these, these, these addictions realize the chains that hold on to them. Jesus died to break those chains. That's why he came to this earth, to break the bondage of sin and to destroy the enemy of, uh, of mankind, the devil who has our minds so blinded and has us so bound and walking in his own control and living for him instead of living for the Lord. And there's countless many. And every day I look at the statistics and I see how many used to go to church and don't go to church anymore and used to believe and don't believe anymore. And our country is going in a complete wrong direction. Jesus only had to come to this earth once. For the sole purpose of showing people who he was. He was God in the flesh. To wit, the God was in the flesh, uh, seen of angels, just, justified in this world, preached unto the poor, received up into the glory. Lived a completely sinless, spotless life. And, and that life that he had as he begins to tell people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am your Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one who's come to redeem you. And as he's hanging up on the cross, he said, it is finished. He was the once and for all sacrifice. There's no other sacrifices that can be made. It's already made. Ascended to the right hand of the Father, and, and he will come back one day, but it's for the rapture to receive his own up out of this world. I want you to have a clean conscience this morning. But if we want to have a clean conscience, we've got to deal with sin in our lives. This cross preaches that there is a penalty against sin. This life preaches that there could be victory over sin. The answer to a clean conscience is found in verse 18. For Christ also had once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And overall, as we look at the passage of Scripture, we understand that that old life that I used to live, once I received Christ as my Savior, I, that old man is dead. That old life is gone. The devil can try to bring up whatever he wants to bring up against me and remind me of all the wrongs that I've committed in the past and everything that I've I've horrible things that I'm ashamed of Christ that I've died for that. It's settled. It's done. Never to bring it up ever again. It's not held against me. Sometimes the only thing that we hold is us holding against ourselves. God hasn't hold, held it against us. He's settled those sins. And we don't live in that old house anymore, but we've been, we're being conformed into the image of Christ daily. Peter quickly turns and he points us to Christ and he starts out in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Verse 16, uh, talking about those who falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. He said, there's going to be people to look at you. They're going to mock your life. and say, oh yeah, you're one of those Jesus freaks, aren't you? You're, you're one of those ones. You, you go to church, you dress up, that's good, what have you. Listen, I, years ago there was an old man by the name of James Edwards instrumental in my life when I first got saved. He says, you know what? There's a lot of people in this world, and they'll tell you this. They say, you're, you're a fool for Christ. He says, you know the biggest fool? He says, if, if what I say is not true, I have nothing to lose. But if what they say is not true, they have hell to pay. But Christ settled these matters. And that's what baptism signifies a death to that old man. A death to that old man. Christ is the answer to a clean conscience. He is an answer to a victorious Christian life. But again, us, he says here, he says it's not the putting away the filth of the flesh in verse 20 or 21, I believe it is. It's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. In other words, Peter's saying you still have this flesh you need to deal with. You, you, every day you wake up, there's this flesh that you're going to, you're going to be dealing with those thoughts and you're going to be dealing with things, issues in your life. You're, you're going to mess up. He says, this is not the putting away the, it's not going to wash away your sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ washes away your sins. You still want to deal with the filth of the flesh. But it's an answer to a clean conscience. Peter uses 
this analogy as he describes Noah and his ark, and he talks about how Noah preached and prepared an ark and how he was saved. He wasn't saved by baptism. Noah wasn't saved by baptism. Noah wasn't saved by his preaching. Noah wasn't saved by the things he did. You want to know how Noah was saved? By getting on the ark. And God shut the door. You want to know how you're saved? Getting in Christ. If you're in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things. Again, what Noah did was an outward expression to point it to an inward reality as he uh, builds that ark and he gets into it and he realizes that's the only way that he can be saved. I realize the only way that I can be saved is getting into that one provision that, G- that God made for us to be saved. That one provision, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And you, you, the only way that you want to be saved is if you receive those words. But the baptism, the baptism didn't save them. And the baptism doesn't save us. But it does picture our salvation, and that's what every time that somebody is baptized into these rivers, I can't see somebody who had received Christ as their Savior. I can only take your words for it. I can't look around and say, oh, no, this guy, this Ben over here, he's got a sign on him. He says he's saved. No, he doesn't. I, I, all I can take is your word for it where you tell me. He says, well, you know, I have received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm not trusting in a church membership. I'm not trusting in baptism. I'm not trusting in trying to be a good person. But when you step foot in these waters and you come down to be identified with Christ like I was in 2011 and I was baptized in the Cherokee Lake and uh, the preacher, he, he told the whole crowd and I was standing there with a boat dock and they were all singing from their hymn books and it was just a glorious time. It was a picture of what Christ had already done for me. Symbolized the perfect work of Christ and me identifying in Him. Peter recognized that even after he had received Christ as Savior, that there are still problems in his flesh. But thank God for the salvation of Jesus Christ. But this baptism, it does picture that something happened inside of me. The inward work of the heart. I died, but Christ lives through me. Romans 6.3, know you not that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we should walk in newness of life. It's not just his death that's an answer to a good conscience, but it's his life. His life is the answer to a clean conscience, a good conscience. Again, in verse 21, it says, the answer of a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't leave out the resurrection. Jesus was raised up out of the waters. He was lifted up. Uh, after he was, went to the cross, he was buried in that borrowed tomb. He risen again and he ascended up to the Father which is in heaven. This reconciliation does something besides removing enmity and captivity to sin. The Spirit of God moves in and does a work in us. Holy Spirit does. I'm not what I am because of something that I did. It's because of the Holy Spirit working in and through my life. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 um, she, she was all messed up about how to, how to worship and where to worship and, and who God was and all this. And Jesus says, you don't even know who you worship. There's going to come a time where you neither worship in this mountain of Samaria nor in that mountain in Jerusalem. But they either worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And finally, she had the picture. and She recognized that uh, Jesus was the Christ. She went out to tell the whole town about it. Come see a man that told me everything there was to know about me. Is not this the Christ? Whole life transformed and changed. It's the Spirit of God at work in the inward man. Sometimes, um, sometimes we do things we do because of this flesh. Uh, that's reality. 
But a lot of times we do things we do because we know it pleases God. Peter, Paul says this, he says, With a mind I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why we do our devotions is because we know it pleases God. And there's, if we don't do it, we understand that there's a Holy Spirit that will convict us. How's your walk with God? And they'll convict me and say, Henry, you haven't prayed in a while. Henry, you haven't read my word in a while. Henry, you haven't treated your family right. Henry, this, I mean, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. It says despise not prophesying and all these, these kind of things. That's another sermon for another time. But we do what we do because of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. But it's not just the Spirit that responds to God, but the conscience. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither with the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling of the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the soul, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, here it is, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Did you get that? He said, when Christ died for you, you received him as your Savior. That one sacrifice, what he did, it purged your conscience from those dead works. It purged your conscience from those dead works to serve the living God. See, we're raised to not live the way we used to. We're raised to live for God. It's His life working in us and living through us through the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we should also live with Him. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to Try to move on to this last point, the power of Christ, the power of Christ. I realize that uh, God can do incredible things, and if somebody is right with God, he's got a clean conscience, he's, he's living, he's working for God, he's living for God, he's trying to do what's right, not that he's perfect every single time, but trying to do what's right, you could trust him as the best worker that you'll ever have. You could trust uh, your husband, you can trust your wife. You don't have to buy all these gifts for them to please them. Uh, God, to take care of that. Why? Because you have a clean conscience. One day I'm going to grow old. <laughs> I'm not going to look as good as I used to. It amazes me. I look back at those wedding pictures. I feel like a whole new, different man. I'm getting old. Not always want to have money I used to. Can't please my wife or God with those things, but I can please them with living toward God. But here it is, the power of Christ. Answer a good conscience because of the power of Christ alive in me. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, For as much as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. It says basically two things. Number one, that we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We're to have the same mind as Him. Philippians 2 tells us to have the mind of Christ. But He also says it here in other places as well. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. But it also says uh, that we're living by a new rule. Submission to the will of God, that we should no longer live the way we used to, to the, to the will of the flesh, to, to, to please myself, to to live according to my wants and my desires and my ways. I've put all that behind. But now I live to the will of God. How many of you want to live to the will of God besides me? All of us should want that. I want to live to the will of God. And Christ gives you power to do that. He gives you power to live according to His will. He gives you power not to, not to submit and to give in to sin. Again, he that is dead to sin, you, you're free from that. There's a battle for the mind, folks. Baptism pictures death. That means you need to die to the flesh. It means you need a new life. That doesn't mean you pull out your wallet and hold it up in the air when you get baptized. Judy, Troy, don't do this. Hold your hand up in the air and say, I want to be baptized only so much. 
But let me hold on to my wallet. Let me hold on to my strength. I'll be baptized so much, but don't mess up my hair. I don't want I'll get baptized so much. You're either baptized into his death or you're not. Ephesians and Colossians says, put off the old man. And put on the new man which is created in Christ and righteousness. You are dead. Your life is hid with Christ and God. Mortify your members that are upon this earth. We've got to arm ourselves with the same mind of Christ. We need to walk in newness of life. Much of our trouble is what we think. I know my thinking gets me in trouble a lot of times. That's why the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why the Bible says, bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. That's why Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end. We don't need some sort of self-help book or some sort of theology that's going to help us. We just need to count ourselves dead, reckon ourselves dead indeed unto Christ. Stop leaning to our own understanding, Proverbs chapter 3. Because that's what we do if we're honest with ourselves. Leaning to our own understanding instead of having the mind of Christ. It's not the self-life that we need, it's the Christ life that we need. I want to live like my Savior. I want to live like my Lord. I used to get in all kinds of trouble trying to do things my way. My mom, just she had the hardest time with me because sometimes I was hard-headed growing up. Doing schoolwork and things like that. She says, they called me junior growing up. They said, Junior, why, why, why didn't you ask the teacher any questions? And why didn't you uh, raise your hand and participate in school? Uh, junior, you know, what's, what's wrong? You know, I raised you better than this. I said, Mom, I figured it out myself. I had the hardest time dealing with my own self. We don't need to deal with our own self any longer if we let Christ live through us. The second exhortation is to live by a new rule. Walking by the Spirit and the will of God, Galatians 5. You have two choices. You can um, walk in the flesh, and he talks about the works of the flesh, or you can walk in the Spirit. Baptism pictures both these exhortations. Raised to walk in newness of life, with a new mindset that has a good conscience toward God. As the seasons change, I love the changing of leaves, don't you? This is the first time that I've got to see the brightness of the colors and the way that they are, the red, the yellow, all the different hues, the the chlorophyll, whatever the word is, that comes out of it, you know. And during the summer times, you know, when they got all that water and the sun is beaming just right, it doesn't have the change. It's perfectly green, which is good, but I love the changing of the fall colors. When the chlorophyll is sort of drained out of it and it begins to change these colors, the pigments, the yellow, the orange, that were already in the leaves that were massed in the summertime now come out, and these beautiful dying leaves, because that's what they are. When you see the change in the colors, they're about ready to die. They're falling to the ground, but they're beautiful. Christians are most beautiful when they learn to walk in self-denial. When That sets us apart from everybody else. When we've died to the world. And we're alive to Christ. It's beautiful, the beautiful pigmentation, the vibrancy of the colors in our walk with God and shines in great contrast to the worldly experience. Thank God for that. Baptism, again, doesn't save us, doesn't give us any merit of grace. However, it sure does look good on us when we're baptized because of obedience to the command. The Bible teaches when we're baptized, it's symbolic of our death, burial, resurrection of Christ. It doesn't cause any of those things. It just simply declares it's already happened. It's a decision you made a long time ago. And to say that you believe one, one must be baptized in order to be saved is like saying that you have to be buried in order to be dead. No, you're buried because death has already occurred. A death has already occurred. It's Christ's death. Let me end with this. Just like God was long-suffering in the days of Noah, he's long-suffering in our times. Sometimes I look at the way that the world is, what's going on in Israel, what's going on around the world. Thank God for his long-suffering nature, but I tell you, it's only so much longer that God's going to put up with the world the way it is. 
And he's going to come back, and he's going to judge this world by his son. Acts 17, verse 30, it says, In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge this world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. He will judge the world. Baptism is not removal of the dirt from the body. I had one young man who told me one time, he came out of the Lutheran church, he came to to me for, um, him and his father came to me for some counsel, and he says, uh, Daddy, I got baptized, can I tell him? He says, yeah, tell me, I want to hear about it. He said, got baptized in the Lutheran church, and uh, got all my sins washed away, didn't I, Daddy? He says, yes, you did. And I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> I got baptized when I was eight years old. I've told some of you this already. Eight years old. You know what happened? They told me the only way I could go swimming in a river is if I got baptized. I said, sign me up. I'll get baptized and I go swimming. I had no idea what it meant. Anybody who wants to be baptized, I want to spend time. I want you to recognize what it is and what it means. I don't want it to be something that's casual like I did when I was eight years old or like my wife did when she was baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church. You got to recognize what it is and what it means. Conclude with this story. There was a drunk. He came across this baptismal service and he stumbled in one afternoon. And the preacher came to him and he grabbed him and he noticed this drunk and he says, Mister, are you ready to find Jesus? The drunk looked back and he says, Yes, preacher, I sure am. I'm ready to find Jesus. And the preacher dunked him into the water and he says, Did you find Jesus? He says, No, sure didn't. And he dunks him back down again. And he says, Did you find Jesus? He says, No. He's not down there. He said, sir, did you find Jesus? He said, are you sure he just dumped here? You're not going to find Jesus in that pool. He didn't fall in the baptismal pool. You're not going to find him there. But thank God he did die to save us, and we could be pictured in his baptism. We can have a good conscience because of the death of Christ, because of the life of Christ, and because of the power of Christ. Let us bow our heads.